If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> and uh, going to have, uh, going to jump out of our series in Romans. Uh, we have a lot of people gone this morning because uh, Christmas is upon us, so uh, going to come back to uh, Romans next week, but uh, you'll see a lot of connecting points here in Hebrews uh, with what we've been studying in Romans. Uh, you'll see why I chose this as kind of a, a Christmas message as we work our way through the text here. But let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we uh, look at the text of Hebrews chapter 2 this morning and, and why Jesus came into the world, uh, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we rejoice in that. Uh, what a wonderful uh, message it is. And so, Lord, minister to our hearts the truth of your word uh, this morning as we study together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In particular, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18, and I've titled the message, The Mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Romans and Hebrews are two great doctrinal books. Romans has been described as presenting the one way, while Hebrews presents him as the better way. Hebrews presents Christ as the full and final revelation of God. Christ in Hebrews is presented as better or superior to the prophets, the angels, Moses, Aaron, the Levitical priests, Joshua, and the Old Covenant. Hebrews exalts both the person and the work of Christ in his incarnation, substitutionary death, and in his priesthood. Christ is shown to fulfill Old Covenant theology and is shown to be superior to all of these. So really, when we're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, it essentially answers the question, why was Jesus born? This builds on who Jesus is as God as seen in chapter 1. Now, I'm only going to touch on the key points in this chapter uh, and present the package really as a whole showing why Jesus came. And this is what we're going to see uh, as you look on the overhead here. Uh, Jesus came to be our status changer, our substitute, our salvation trailblazer, our sanctifier, our Satan conqueror, and our sympathetic high priest. Now, I'm pretty sure I could preach a message on each one of these points. So like I say, we're going to touch on them, but not going to dwell too deeply. But let's get started, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, now we do not yet see all things put under him. Well, what is this all about anyway? These verses are teaching us that God created man to rule for him. When God created the world and everything in it, in six days, all along the way, we find God saying, it was good. He assessed it as, as good. It was only after the creation of mankind in his own image do we read, 
Very good. God, in effect, made the man and the woman as royalty. Royalty over the earth, intending for them to rule over it all for him. But then something happened that is called the fall. The fall of mankind into sin. In following Satan instead of God, man allowed the devil to be over him. Now the devil has the lordship over man instead of God. Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. That's a pretty amazing title. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul called him the God of this age. Now the entire world system is in rebellion against God. And they follow Satan, who heads up this system of rebellion. But this has not changed God's plan or intention that man ultimately rule the world for him. How can it be that mankind will rule the world for God? Enter Jesus. Hebrews 2.5 affirms that God's plan and destiny is that angels will not rule the world to come, which means the kingdom to come. I want you to know right now there is an angel who's in charge of this world system. Now, God is always sovereign. God is always sovereign. But remember, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. Uh, is uh, the devil an angel? Yes, he is. He's a fallen angel. But in the world to come, things are going to be different. In the kingdom, angels will not be in charge. Rather, people will be. Now, Jesus is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. That is totally unchallenged. But under him, his people will rule with him. We read in Revelation chapter 5, heaven's excited, and here's what they're excited about. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, the title deed of the world. They're excited about Jesus. He's taking the scroll. And to open its seals... For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's what heaven is excited about. We shall reign on the earth. But for right now, we don't see all things put under mankind. Right now, angels have a greater functional role than mankind. For example, angels do not die while we do. But in the kingdom age, the world to come, God is going to flip this where mankind will again have dominion. You see, mankind was created special, being the very image bearer of God. He was created for glory and honor and dominion. Almost in amazement with the writer of Psalm 8, which is David, almost in amazement, we, we have this, this quote from Psalm 8, 4, which says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You know, it's a pretty amazing thing. Why would God take notice of us? I mean, we are really puny, right? I mean, here's the universe. You know, you're here somewhere. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. 
from a natural standpoint, our entire planet in the big scheme of things is so tiny and minuscule as to make it seemingly insignificant and unimportant. You know, Carl Sagan, sometimes referred to as Sagan the Pagan, you know, I mean, he definitely not Christian in any way, shape, or form, but he says, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some foreign, in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Okay, that's pretty, uh, okay, insignificant. How can it be that man matters? How can it be that God is vitally interested in us? As the writer goes on to show, the answer is that, that God is mindful of man and visits him because humanity is greater than all other created beings. He is the crowning work of God's creation with the highest of calling. God's care and visitation proves mankind's value. Mankind matters so much because it matters to God. He created us in his image. Nothing else has this dignified representation. The language here refers to original creation where mankind is said to be crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with glory and honor. Human life is special. There was special dignity, glory bestowed on mankind as image bearers of God. Mankind had the esteemed privilege to walk with God and to serve as his vice regents over God's created earth. You know, God is God and there is no other God, but you know, we're kind of, we have a, a, a function in the image of God to where we too were created to rule. God rules, but under God we rule. Thus, God designed man to rule, to have dominion over his creation. This was God's intention. I mean, this is the way he created it. Glory refers to being made in God's glorious image. It's an amazing reality. All people have value because of this. Honor refers to the authority and the position which God had bestowed upon mankind. Adam and Eve were, in effect, king and queen over God's original creation on earth. They were set in the midst of God's paradise on earth and walked with God in perfect fellowship. Under God, they were totally in charge. Indeed, they were crowned with glory and honor. Note the double emphasis in verse 8 that all things, all things were put under the dominion of man, under his feet in the position of absolute authority. This idea is seen in a conquering king putting his foot on the neck of a deposed king, signified absolute dominion. Now, God intended for mankind to rule with absolute authority. And that has not changed. God designed man to rule. And this will ultimately be fulfilled and realized in Jesus in the kingdom. God rules as those made in his image were created to rule. And by grace, we will rule in the kingdom under Jesus, with Jesus. 
But he says, but now we do not yet see all things under him. God put all things under the dominion of mankind as seen in Genesis 1. But again, something happened. To where we don't see that kind of dominion being exercised today. Now, there are those who believe in dominion theology that we're supposed to just going to take over. We're not going to take over, folks. Uh, the Lord Jesus is going to take over when he comes back, and we're going to, we're going to be on his shirt tails. <laughs> I mean, we're following him. But uh, this dominion theology is, you know, trying to do it in the flesh. Uh, Jesus Christ is going to do that. But sin entered in. Now, this is what we call the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. And sin brought the curse on the creation. So the man trying to control things on planet Earth now is very difficult. We're trying to change the climate, for crying out loud. It's a really big job. little humor there. Uh, now the earth itself brings forth thorns and thistles and requires great effort to control it. Pay big money to try to get the, the crops to grow properly without the weeds taking over. Animals are no longer docile creatures, but rather are very ferocious and dangerous, certainly many of them. Uh, the whole of nature was affected. Mankind today at best has limited dominion that is maintained only with great toil and difficulty. But perhaps the biggest way in which man lost his absolute dominion rule was in relationship to angels. And in particular, in relationship to the fallen angel Satan and the fallen angels who follow him, known as demons. Something happened there. You know, you cannot believe the influence the demons and the devil has on this world today. Uh, they control the governments of the world. Uh, you go to Daniel and you take a look behind the scenes. Demonic influence is powerful. That's why God's people are called to pray. We pray for those in authority. And praise the Lord for the remnant that is there that are, are godly folks that know the Lord. Uh, God does put a few Daniels in, in position. But here's what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm in Luke chapter 4, the devil, this is when he's tempting, uh, trying to tempt Jesus. Uh, the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. And their glory, this has been delivered to me. I will give it to, to whomever I wish. You know, Jesus didn't refute that and say, no, that's not true, devil. No, under the sovereignty of God, it's true. In a limited scope, it's true. This authority described by Satan is the very dominion authority that God originally gave to man, but which has now been usurped by Satan in the fall of mankind. Now Satan is a defeated foe, but his sentence is yet to be carried out. We're looking forward to this day, right? Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush, crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. That crushing is coming. It's not yet, but it's coming. Satan is about to be crushed by God, but not yet. He is still on a leash 
with authority over the world. What makes Satan so upset is that one aspect in the world that he doesn't control is the believer who is walking in the Spirit. This is terribly frustrating to him, and he is powerless to do anything about it other than cater to our flesh. And still having the flesh, we are yet vulnerable to temptation when we take our eyes off of Jesus. But now, but now, in contrast to the dominion mandate given at creation, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, that is mankind. Verse 9, but, but, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Right now, we don't see the original mandate, the original dominion mandate being fulfilled in mankind. We don't see it yet. But we see Jesus, who will ultimately bring about the fulfillment of it. This is why he came. God is not done with his plan for mankind, and what he intended is going to be accomplished ultimately. This is why Jesus came. He, as the second Adam, came to fulfill what the first Adam failed in. Jesus is our champion. He is the one that comes forth on behalf of humanity to restore our fortunes. He comes forth as our great representative. He comes forth as our Savior and Lord and writes things in favor of mankind. He once again puts mankind back in the top position. But in order to accomplish this, he had to assume a position a little lower than the angels, which he did in becoming a man. Jesus becoming a man is commonly called the incarnation. The name Jesus is a very special name given to him on, at the time of his birth. Uh, it was given to him upon becoming a human. The name Jesus uh, in the New Testament corresponds to the name Joshua in the Old Testament. Thus, the names Jesus and Joshua are equivalents. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation, or the Lord saves. In effect, this name means God Savior. It inherently speaks of his deity as Yahweh, but also of him being the Savior. He is the God who saves. But in order to save, he had to become human. You see, uh, he will get to this, but he had to become human so that he could make the death penalty, pay the death penalty, die for our sins. Jesus is the God-man who saves. So just real briefly here, Joshua is the Hebrew, Jesus is the Greek, meaning Yahweh is salvation, God's Savior. And that's what the idea is in Matthew 1.21, uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Hebrews 2.9, it's like the writer runs to the end of the story of Christ's death, followed by his resurrection and exaltation, crowned with glory and honor. 
and then comes back to add more detail to the fact of his death, saying that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Here is where we have the glorious truth of Christ being our substitute. Christ, as the representative of humanity, died for us all. Christ's death was, for sin was a grace payment. Uh, this is the grace of God on display. Grace means God's favor, his unmerited, undeserved favor. It's an undeserved gift. This is the essence of the cross. If you're looking for a definition of grace, look no further than the cross. It's a love of God paying for our sins. We are guilty. We should have paid the eternal death penalty. But Christ voluntarily came and took our place. This is why Christ was born. He was born to die for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Note the writer specifically says the grace of God is that Jesus might taste death for everyone. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel of grace. It's that Christ died for our sins. We don't pay for our own sins. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. It's for this reason that heaven sings, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory. No one in heaven is walking around congratulating themselves. No, they're giving 100% of the glory and the praise to Jesus alone because it's all his doing. Jesus was all alone on the cross. He alone is the Savior. In his dying breath, he said, it is finished. He by himself paid it all. It's all of grace. We don't add our two cents. Don't add good works. Don't add church. Don't add sacraments. Don't add baptism. Don't add even prayer. Faith is a matter of the heart. We believe in our heart, and then as an expression of our faith, we confess with our mouth. When it says that Christ might taste death, it means that he might experience or appropriate it for everyone. And notice specifically says that he might taste death for everyone. Robert Gramacki says, just as the sin of the first man influenced the entire race, so the death of Christ made a universal provision for deliverance. Its value, of course, must be received by personal faith. In Christ, a man has been exalted to the highest position in the universe. Right now, a man is at the right hand of God. He's the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as redeemed mankind, we shall share in that glory. Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. But beyond that, Christ came to restore us and exalt us to the dominion glory that God intended for us from the very beginning. Where sin abounded, grace has abounded much more. Now, I love this little story from Rod Broding. He writes, and this is from many years ago when a dollar still meant something. But he says, I remember the winter in Lake Benton, Minnesota, after my dad died, it was cold. Money was scarce. We had bought fuel twice already before Christmas. Mother had charged almost $30 worth of groceries at Ernie's store. And that bothered her. One morning, she put $10 in an envelope for me to drop, drop off at the store on my way to school. 
In fact, she insisted on pinning it to my shirt so that I would not lose it. I delivered the envelope, and Ernie told me to stop by after school and pick up the receipt. When I arrived home, I gave it to Mother. She opened it up and began crying. The $10 bill was still there, along with a wad of grocery slips. On the top one was written, Paid in full, Merry Christmas. Well, paid in full, Merry Christmas. That's God's promised message to us. God sent his son to be the full payment for our sins. That's the good news. And I love this story, but let me embellish it just a little bit. Suppose Ernie, the store owner, had also attached the title deed of the store to the grocery slip, saying, I not only forgive your debt, but I also raise you up to be the, in the position of co-owner co of the store. That's really abounding grace. That's what Christ has done for us. He not only paid our debt, but in grace has exalted us to reign with him. In Christ, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Let this sink in. In Romans 8, 17, and if children, if we're the children of God, which we are as believers, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Indeed, the coming of Christ was proclaimed with the angelic announcement, tidings of great joy. The best is yet to be. We have been forgiven. We are on our way to the kingdom where we are going to reign with Jesus Christ. We are now joint heirs with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That means we will share in all that belongs to him. I can't begin to fathom it. In Christ, God has given us everything there is to give. He's held nothing back. You are an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. As our great representative, he has brought us into an inheritance of everything. Let that sink in. This season of giving, what has God not given you? He has given you everything there is to give. You will share in everything that belongs to Jesus Christ. Wow, wow, wow. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was fitting for God to send Jesus in this way that he did. Fitting means uh, it's completely consistent with all God's requirements related to both his holiness and his love. It fits perfectly with having Christ go through what was necessary to make the way of salvation possible for us and to equip him to be the perfect high priest. The great plan of God, which involves the incarnation, including the death and resurrection of Christ, was designed by God to accomplish various things, including bringing many sons to glory. 
One of the great objectives in the incarnation was bringing many sons to glory. It could be accomplished no other way. I mean, we got a sin problem. It has to be taken care of. How could it be taken care of? Well, God in his wisdom made a way consistent with who he is and his holiness. When it describes Christ as the captain of their salvation, the the word captain means pioneer or trailblazer. Christ has gone before us, in effect blazing the trail to glory for us, and we follow in that train. We are on the way to glory. Christ, our brother, has gone there, and he has gone to prepare a place for us. We're on the way to glory. We are going to be with Christ, and we will behold his glory. God is bringing many sons. Where is he bringing them? To glory. We have a glory destination. We are on our way to the glory land. And the coming of Christ made this possible. All the things I'm bringing out, if Christ had not come, none of this would have been possible. G.B. Hardy, in his book Countdown, said this is the ultimate question in the world. Number one, has anybody ever cheated death? Number two, if he did, did he leave the way open for me? (laughs) Well, has anyone ever conquered death? Well, yes, there is one. His name is Jesus. Has he made a way for others to follow? Yes, yes. He is bringing many sons to glory. He's not bringing just a few, by the way, but many, many sons to glory. Heaven is going to be filled with throngs of redeemed saints. In Revelation 7, John saw a multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It was fitting and necessary for the captain of our salvation to be made perfect through sufferings. Now, Christ as God was always perfect. Christ was the sinless God-man and was always morally perfect. In view here is functional perfection, or we might say completion. The word perfect means to reach a goal, to make complete to bring to fulfillment. Christ had to be made perfect, not morally, but in the sense that his humanity had to complete a suffering regiment. That in his humanity, he would learn what it is uh, to experience temptation, to go through all the sufferings that humanity goes through. This could be achieved no other way. Verse 11 For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now verses 11 through 13 emphasize Christ's identity with mankind as a human being. And this is a very important aspect of who Christ is. You know, I often, I emphasize all the time Jesus is God. I just hammer that. I don't want to say it to death. <laughs> but I, I, I beat that drum hard. But here the emphasis, and, and that's, that's already been established, chapter 1. Jesus is God. He's no question. But here the emphasis is he is one of us. Oh, he's far more than us. And yet at the same time, he's fully human. He can relate to you as a human. 
What a privilege for us to identify with him. But think of it. The verse says he is not ashamed to openly identify with us as one of us in his humanness. The Savior, the Christ, is a man. And yet not merely a man, but rather the God-man. The God-man. The point here is that of his identity as a fellow human being, as a fellow member of the human race, he is one of us. Christ is the one who sanctifies, set apart, sets apart. And those who are being sanctified, that is set apart, are believers. Both the sanctifier and the sanctified, that is Christ and believers, are all one. That, all, that is, we all share a common humanity. But I want you to note carefully that it is not all people generally that Jesus calls brethren, but only those that are sanctified by him. You got the whole of humanity over here, and those that are now set apart over here are his brethren. And who are those who are sanctified by him? Well, they are believers. In Acts 26, 18, Jesus says, speaks of those, those who are sanctified by faith in me. There is positional sanctification. When you believe in Christ, you are set apart as belonging to Christ. And then there is practical sanctification. As you grow, as you walk with Christ, you're becoming more like Christ. That's practical sanctification. So there's positional sanctification and there's practical sanctification. And we find both here in one verse. I love this verse for this reason. Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering he is perfected forever. That's positional sanctification. You're perfected. You can't get any better than that forever. You can't get any longer than that. But then it says, those who are being sanctified. That's practical sanctification. Now, position never changes, but in practice you are growing. All true believers are perfected forever. That is, they have positional sanctification. And we are in process of being made more like Jesus. Practical sanctification. Twice in the New Testament, we read of God being not ashamed of his people. Which is an amazing thing. You know, don't you think sometimes, oh, I think God might just be a little ashamed of me. No, no. Twice we read here, and both are in Hebrews, by the way. Here in Hebrews 2.11, we see that Christ is not ashamed to call the sanctified his brethren. The other place is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where we read that God is not ashamed to call believers who hope for a better country. He is not ashamed to be called their God. Hebrews 11.16 16. Now, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. This is our hope. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Not gonna, hope doesn't disappoint. We're looking forward to this city that God has prepared for us. He's not ashamed to be called our God because of our faith. Verse 12. Saying, I declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I sing praise to you. Now, Hebrews 2.12 here is a quote from Psalm 22.22. 22. And he's making a specific point here. Again, related to the fact that we are Christ's brethren. Psalm 22 is called the Psalm of the Cross. It is the basis of the cross that, that allows Christ to call us brethren. 
But although the emphasis of Psalm 22 is the cross, it also points to the resurrection, which is really the context of this quote. Let me just quickly break it down for you here as far as what we have here. In uh, Psalm twenty-two twenty-one, it says there, Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the prayer of Christ from the cross. And then it says, You have answered me. I take this to be in the resurrection. Verse 22, I declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. This really is post-resurrection. Post-resurrection. Jesus taught that only those who do the will of the Father are his spiritual family. But really, during his earthly ministry, prior to the resurrection, Jesus never directly called his disciples brethren. Isn't that interesting? Prior to the resurrection, we never see him directly call them brethren. However, he did do so after the resurrection. Not until he had made full payment for sin on the cross did Christ openly express his intimate identification with believers as brothers. The cross is the basis. The resurrection declares it fulfilled. We are Christ's brethren. It comes from the mouth of the triumphant Messiah in the resurrection in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 22. Well, based on Christ's death, we have forgiveness. Based on his resurrection, we as his brethren will share in his glory. Note that Christ declares God's name to his brethren. A person's name stood for their whole character, their whole person. Christ made known God to his brethren. That's what what Christ does. He makes known God to us. We have come to know God through Christ. Not only does Christ make God known to his brethren, he also leads them in worship. Notice it says, he says, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. What an interesting dynamic. In the resurrection, Christ is worshiped, and yet as the resurrected man, he leads his brethren in worship of the Father. Tremendous interesting dynamic. Uh, Verse uh, 13 And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Again, we have a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 13 is a summary of Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. Really two quotes in close combination. The first quote, I will put my trust in him, comes from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 8, 17. Isaiah spoke these words, but ultimately they are applied to Christ, who fully relied upon God as his father. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me is a quote from Isaiah 8.18. Again, although spoken of Isaiah and his children as representative of a faithful remnant, the writer here applies it to Christ in his identification with believers whom the Father in sovereign grace has given him. Here's the point. These Old Testament quotes place the speaker, Christ, in the same family category as God's children. They serve to intimately identify Christ as brother to all those who are believers. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
Just as being human means that we partake of flesh and blood, so Christ also likewise became flesh and blood, became a human being. The writer is saying in the strongest of terms that Christ became human just like us. And the reason he did so was that through death, he had to become human to die, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Christ came to destroy the devil who has the power of death. Christ's death was a defeat of the devil. See, God has the power of life. The devil has the power of death. In what sense does the devil have the power of death? Ultimately, life and death are in the sovereign hand of God, as we read in various places. The devil can only do what God allows. However, the death of the human race is traced back to the devil in the sense that it was the devil who led mankind into sin, and by sin comes death. Christ called the devil a murderer from the beginning. He takes people out. He leads people down the death path. In sin, we are in effect held in the devil's death grip. Christ also called the devil the father of lies. It is through lies and deception that the devil keeps mankind in the bondage of sin and death. That is his power. It's a powerful death hold. Only Christ through his death could break the devil's death grip on humanity. Christ conquered the power of death through death. You see, the devil holds people in death through deception. Deception. But Christ frees people through the truth of the gospel. When people believe it, as we believe the gospel, we pass from death to life. In salvation, Christ not only frees us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of the devil. We now walk in the light of God's truth and in the power of his resurrection life. By the way, the Greek word translated destroy is better translated as rendered inoperative. The devil is not destroyed in the sense of being abolished, but in Christ he has been disarmed and no longer holds the power of death over the believer. We know the gospel truth, which brings us life and freedom. Eventually, the devil will be confined to the lake of fire for all eternity. But he's not there yet. He's a defeated foe, but he's still very active at present. At present, he holds unbelievers in the grip of sin and death, but not believers. We are now free in Christ. Although he tempts us, and he continues to be our adversary, we are not in bondage to him any longer. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. We no longer need to listen to any of the devil's lies. Instead, we are free to walk in truth. But notice where he goes with this, verse 15. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The great fear in life is the fear of death. 
It's the, it's, it's the great enemy. It's the last enemy. It's called the king of terrors. The fear of death speaks to the reality that we are moral beings with a God consciousness. We fear accountability. The fear of death and what happens at death is a terrible form of bondage. Boy, until I got saved, I lived with that every day. Every day. You know, like I say, in my drinking days, I, at the end of the day, I'd say, Lord, forgive me for everything I did. <laughs> uh, you know, I was just afraid. I was afraid to die. You know, what's going to happen then? That is where people without Christ live. If they're honest, dying scares them to death, and it should. This is from a William Newell. He writes, from the time you were born, your mother was afraid you would die. The household kept in touch with the doctors. Through fear of death, funerals passed your house, often carrying loved ones filled with dread. The cemeteries you passed cried out, you will soon be here. The philosophers and the poets you read made your life a brief passing moment. And then death. The human race is today subject to bondage. They may talk peace, but yonder comes the undertaker. Oh, yeah. We got a death problem. The fear of death. People talk big. Fear of death. Here comes the undertaker. Then what? But praise be to God, Christ has released us from the bondage of fear of death. The blood of Christ now cleanses our conscience. Now we know the truth that in Christ there is no condemnation. We know the truth that in Christ to die is gain. Christ has so overwhelmingly defeated death that the very term death is no longer really appropriate for believers. The New Testament speaks of it as a departure. To depart and be with Christ is far better. And the Bible now speaks of, of the body as, are you ready for this? It's what some of you are trying to do right now. Sleeping. It speaks of the body in death as sleeping. And you know what sleep is? It's a temporary condition. It awaits the resurrection. In Christ, the sting of death has been removed. Death has been robbed of its victory. And there is such a thing as dying grace. The evangelist D.L. Moody was asked about dying grace, and he said, when the dying hour comes, there will be dying grace. But you do not require dying grace to, to live by. How true that is. God gives living grace for living, and he gives dying grace for dying. You say, well, I'm worried about dying. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself. When it comes time for you to die, God will give you dying grace if you're a believer. And you know, this was Moody's experience. On his deathbed, Moody said, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. And so he did. You know, Moody so aptly said this as well. Death may be the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. Yeah, I love that. God gives living grace for living and dying grace for dying. 
When it comes time for you to die as a believer, God will give you grace. His grace is always sufficient. The bondage of the fear of death has been removed in Christ. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If you're not afraid to die, then you can really enjoy living, living for Christ. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Isn't that an interesting verse? Aid is the idea of help. The writer's point is that Christ came to rescue people. Christ did not become an angel to rescue fallen angels. No provision has been made for fallen angels. You say, why? Well, that's another sermon. No provision has been made for the salvation of fallen angels. I take it that the seed of Abraham in this context is emphasizing his spiritual seed that share in the same faith as Abraham as seen in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Those helped refer specifically to those who are of faith, who are said to be the sons of Abraham in Genesis 3, 7. In Romans 4, 12, Abraham is said to be the father of all those who walk in the same steps of faith which he had. Note, uh, back to our study in Romans, flashback here, Romans 4, 16. Therefore, it is the faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then in Galatians 3, 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Yes, Christ died for everyone, but those that are specifically helped by Christ, those that become the actual beneficiaries of his help, are those who have an Abrahamic-like faith. It is they who are the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. In order to pay for the sin of mankind, Jesus had to become a man. In all things, apart from sin, he had to be made like his brethren. To be our representative, he had to become one of us. By the way, this is the kinsman-redeemer theme that is spelled out in the Old Testament and beautifully illustrated in the book of Ruth. It was the high priest's responsibility to represent the people before God and to offer sacrifice for sin before God on their behalf. Christ had to become a man in order to be able to relate to us and to properly represent us. And as such, he is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Merciful means he's compassionate, he's sympathetic and caring. He can relate to the struggles of life that we as human beings deal with, and he cares. Casting all your cares upon, he cares for you. And he is a faithful high priest. He's trustworthy, he's reliable, he's dependable to represent us properly before God. He faithfully meets all the standards of God. And he represents us well. In representing us at the cross, Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, this idea of propitiation is the idea of satisfying or appeasing God's wrath. 
When people sin, it arouses the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on the unforgiven sinner. Christ, as our high priest, satisfied God's righteous demands of a payment for sin. He appeased his wrath in his substitutionary sacrificial death. In effect, God said, it is enough, it is adequate, I accept that payment for sin. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, God made his soul an offering for sin. And then verse 11, it says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is propitiation. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Being a man enabled Christ to experience temptation. The language is that he suffered being tempted. It was a miserable experience. Hebrews 4.15 says he was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. But this experience of suffering temptation allows him to now fully sympathize with us in our struggle with sin. Sometimes we don't appreciate that. In our struggle with sin, we, we, we kind of think, well, this is kind of alienating me from God. No, he's able to sympathize with you in that struggle. Now, he never sinned, but, but he knows the struggle. He is now perfectly suited to minister to us as a merciful and faithful high priest in our battle with sin. This is the context of Romans 4.16, by the way, when it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace so we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know when your time of need is? It's in your struggle with sin. When you're struggling with sin, come to Jesus. He knows. He cares. He is able to help you. I saw an interviewer on TV, and he was asking people what Christmas, what Christmas meant to them. They said all kinds of really deep things like family get-togethers, which is important, presents, parties, eating lots of food, football. It kind of reminded me of a true story I read years ago in Our, our Daily Bread, Two women were dressed up in their best at a fancy restaurant. A friend saw them and said, what's the special occasion? One of the women said, we're having a birthday party for our two-year-old son. The friend then said, where is the baby? The lady said, oh, I dropped him off at my mother's house. She's taking care of him until the party is over. It wouldn't have been any fun with him along. How ridiculous. Having a birthday party for a boy who is not even welcome at his own party. But really, you know, that's how the world treats Jesus. They make the celebration all about them. It's not about the birth of Christ. Are you kidding? It's not even on the radar. Instead, they make it all about themselves. A few answered the TV interviewer with the idea that Christmas is the celebration of Christ's birth, but went no further no one even came close to touching on the significance of Christ's birth, why he came. May I suggest to you that Hebrews 2 lays it out in a very good fashion. Why did he come? Well, he came to be our status changer. He is going to restore dominion to mankind where we are going to reign with him, under him for sure, but with him. He came to be our substitute, our savior. He came to be our salvation trailblazer, made a way to glory, bringing us to glory. 
came to be our sanctifier, sets us apart from the world, came to be our Satan conqueror, took away his power of death. Yes, we still have the reality of physical death, but no separation from God. To die is gain. We enter into the very presence of the Lord. And then he's our sympathetic high priest. He's our caring representative. He's there for us to help us as we go along in the struggles of life. Indeed, this is the deeper meaning of what the angel announced 2,000 years ago at the birth of Christ when he bursts forth proclaiming, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, let us continue the celebration as believers who know the true meaning of why Christ was born. And God help us to be a vibrant testimony to that reality this Christmas holiday season. Let's stand and have our closing song.